Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and rejuvenate while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your bloodstream. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Steve Poropat talks about the giant Savannosaurus discovered in Queensland. But first up is the Mouse Draculas fed human blood. Middle-aged mice injected with extracts from teenage human blood have younger muscles, livers and brains, ushering in a dark new world market in young human blood, as the mice get a taste for it. Everyone over 50 years old would benefit from a drug based on young blood if the research is confirmed. The findings were presented at the Society for Neuroscience annual meeting in San Diego, California, on the 14th of November, 2016. In previous experiments, researchers have joined the blood vessels of old mice to young mice to show that the blood of young mice could reverse some of the harms of ageing, such as memory loss and reduced healing in older mice. Later experiments by Tony Weiss-Core's team showed the same benefits from injecting the old mice with plasma extracted from the blood of young mice. In 2011, Tony Weiss-Core's team at Stanford found young plasma activates brain plasticity and memory formation in older mice and increases learning and memory abilities. They didn't need whole blood, just the plasma. His work was rejected for publication as too good to be true. He then reproduced the work at a different university with a different team and finally published his results in 2014 as Young Blood Reverses Age-Related Impairments in Cognitive Function and Synaptic Plasticity in Mice. Alkahest is the pharmaceutical company Tony Weiss-Corey formed on the basis of these results. Now researchers at Alkahest in California have injected extracts of young human blood into older mice. At 12 months old, the mice are the equivalent of 50-year-old humans. The muscles and brains of the middle-aged mice were invigorated by a plasma extracted from the blood of human teenagers. The mice received injections of plasma from 18-year-old humans twice a week for three weeks. After the treatment, the middle-aged mice ran around like young mice. Their memories seemed to improve, and they were much better at remembering the route around a maze than untreated mice of the same age. The researchers found evidence of new cells being created in the hippocampus, the part of the brain associated with regulating memory. There could easily be a huge world market for the blood of teenagers, with involuntary blood donations being mandatory. Bleed for the doll. The only way to stop this would be to find the factors at work and synthesise them cheaply. The Alkahest team have isolated factors in young human blood that they believe are responsible for the benefits. They believe the rejuvenation is due to differences in the proteins in blood plasma from young and old bodies. Young blood plasma contains some proteins that disappear with age and seem to be replaced by more destructive molecules. They're keeping the identity of the proteins a commercial secret for now. 
Alkahest has been trialling blood from 30-year-old men in people with Alzheimer's disease since September 2015, but haven't published any results yet, so we don't know if it helps the disease. Nobody knows if the blood of 30-year-old humans still has all the healing properties of blood from teenaged humans, so it's an odd choice of experiment. If the commercial researchers keep any of this information secret for too long, the world's biohackers will just reproduce the work and publish the nature of the rejuvenating factors and offer to mass-produce them. Amy Wages, one of the authors of the earlier Young Blood experiments, has published papers showing that she's isolated a muscle, liver and brain repairing factor from the young mouse's blood, which may help elderly people recover from surgery. Dr. Wages suspects that the factor helps aged stem cells to divide again. In 2012, Dr. Wages published Rejuvenation of Regeneration in the Aging Central Nervous System, which showed that young blood promotes repair of damaged spinal cords in older mice. In 2013, she published Growth Differentiation Factor 11 is a Circulating Factor that Reverses Age-Related Cardiac Hypertrophy which showed young blood sparks the formation of new neurons in the brain and olfactory system, reverses age-related thickening of the walls of the heart, physically increases the strength and stamina of muscles, and reverses DNA damage inside muscle stem cells. She's claimed that growth differentiation factor 11 on its own can give these benefits, but no mouse studies outside Dr. Wager's lab have replicated her mouse studies. However, a similar protein in fruit flies helps them live longer and prevents muscle degeneration. In 2014, a team at the University of California, Berkeley, identified increased levels of the hormone oxytocin in the blood from young mice. When oxytocin was given to older mice, the hormone regenerated wasted muscles within just a few weeks by activating muscle stem cells. Humans have lower levels of oxytocin in their blood as they age. As oxytocin is already approved as a safe and effective drug for inducing labour in pregnant women, it won't be long before its anti-aging effects are also tested on humans. Hopefully, we can find and confirm the factors in teenage blood that reverse many effects of ageing and produce them cheaply and in great quantity so everyone can benefit and nobody is forced to bleed. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Savannosaurus was first discovered in outback Queensland near Winton in 2005 by the director of the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum in Winton, David Elliott. In October 2016, Dr. Stephen Parapat published a paper in the journal Nature which announced the new species of dinosaur to the world. Barry Mackay began by asking Dr. Parapat, how does the discovery of Savannosaurus change our understanding of the geography of the ancient world and the movement of dinosaurs? In some ways, we already know that South America and Australia were both connected to Antarctica throughout pretty much all of the Cretaceous period. So our dinosaur discovery doesn't necessarily shed light on that specifically. What it does show though is how these dinosaurs moved across Antarctica between those two continents, between South America and Australia during the Cretaceous period. Savannosaurus lived about 95 to 98 million years ago and at that time the whole world was quite warm and that would have probably allowed sauropods to use high latitude dispersal routes like Antarctica 
at that time or just before. So was Antarctica a very cold, sort of icy continent at that time? No, it was not. There was no ice covering Antarctica at all. There is some evidence to suggest that around 125 million years ago, there were fairly cold sea surface temperatures at the South Pole, but definitely no ice on Antarctica during the whole Cretaceous as far as we're aware. What about periods of darkness? Would dinosaurs have migrated during periods of light? In the polar regions, you get sort of a very dark winter and a very light summer. Yes, I would imagine that they would have preferred traveling during the daylight hours, so probably during summertime when they would have had quite long hours of daylight to deal with. Traveling at night probably would have been pretty dangerous for them. Even though they're big animals, they probably didn't have good night vision. It's one of the most complete sauropod dinosaurs that's ever been found in Australia. Most of the ones that we do find, you know, you get a couple of bones, and that's about it. In this particular instance, we've got more than 20% of a skeleton. And that might not sound like too much, but when you consider that this animal was pushing 15 metres long, to bury an animal like that quickly enough in order for it to be fossilised, it takes a lot of sediment. And so to get that much of a skeleton is quite significant. How long ago did it live? Savannosaurus lived about 98 to 95 million years ago. So during the middle of the Cretaceous period, about 30 million years before the extinction event that wiped out all non-avian dinosaurs, the very start of the late Cretaceous. Because we've only got the one specimen so far, we actually don't know exactly how long the species persisted for or the genus persisted for. If we had more specimens over a more vast time range, we'd have a better handle on it. But because we've just got the one from 98 to 95 million year old rocks, that's the only age date we can put on it at this point. What did the Savannosaurus eat? Like all sauropod dinosaurs, Savannosaurus would have been a herbivore. And based on the plant fossils that we get from the Winton Formation, we can infer that it probably chose from the following types of plants. There were types of conifers related to modern-day hoop, bunya, and wallamai pines. There were primitive angiosperms, probably somewhat similar to modern-day magnolias. There were ferns, and then less common but still a fairly significant component of the flora were horsetails, an extinct group of plants called Benetitalians, and ginkgo. Uh, so ginkgo and horsetails, of course, still persist on the planet today, but they don't live in Australia anymore, and yet we have their fossils in the Winton area. So what sort of habitat did Savannosaurus live in? The Winton area back in the Cretaceous period would have been a floodplain, and it was quite flat because it had actually been occupied by an inland sea immediately prior to the establishment of that floodplain. But that floodplain was dominated by forest, so it would have been probably a little bit cooler than the Winton area is today, but fairly wet. And uh, we can tell that from some of the animals that lived alongside Savannosaurus as well. We get lungfish fossils, we get freshwater turtles, we get ancestors or relatives of modern-day crocodiles, and those animals just can't live in the Winton area today. It's not wet enough. What did Savannosaurus look like? Well, because we don't have the whole neck or the whole tail or even any of the head, we can't say exactly what its head, neck or tail look like, but the rest of the body and uh, by inference the neck and tail we can tell a bit about. The body would have been big and barrel-like. The legs would have been columnar. They would have had four legs, five toes per foot. It was particularly broad across the hips. And based on the few bones from the neck and tail that we do have, we can suggest that the neck was slightly longer than the tail. So it's a typical sauropod dinosaur, as described in a Monty Python sketch, thin at one end, much, much thicker in the middle, and then thin again at the other end. How big was it? About 12 to 15 metres long. About 2.5 metres tall at both the shoulders and the hips, and probably about 6 metres tall at the head. And it would have weighed somewhere between 15 and 20 tonnes. What sort of noise would the Savannosaurus have made? <laughs> it's, uh, look, it's really hard to tell what sort of noise any types of dinosaurs made. I guess we don't get the soft tissues preserved to tell us what they were capable of. 
But if we infer that it had fairly long vocal cords because it had a long neck, it might have made deep rumbling sounds, sort of like cassowaries and emus can do today. What are the peculiar characteristics of the Savannasaurus compared to other sauropods? I guess it's sort of difficult to explain that without getting into a lot of technicalities because uh, sauropods tend to be pretty conservative in their body shape. But seemingly, Savannasaurus is quite wide relative to its overall size. And therefore, that's one thing that seems to set it apart from other sauropod dinosaurs. It's very wide across the hips, at least 1.5 metres and similarly wide across the shoulders as well. Now, titanosaurs in general are proportionally wider than other sauropods are, but Savannosaurus seems to have taken it to some sort of extreme. What does this wideness of the hips tell us that you've been talking about, which is untypical for sauropods? I guess we have wondered if Savannosaurus was adapted to the particularly muddy terrain that occupied the Winton area 98 to 95 million years ago. Potentially, by spreading out the body weight, it was able to walk more easily over muddy terrain than other sauropods would have done. Of course, that's just hypothetical, but it seems to be one possible explanation. Potentially, Savannosaurus is also wallowing in mud from time to time, just like modern hippopotamus do. How were the Savannosaurus bones first discovered? Well, the bones of Savannosaurus, like most of the dinosaurs that have been found in the Winton area, were not found by paleontologists. They were found back in 2005 by a local grazier named David Elliott. He's actually the founder and chairman of the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum in Winton, which opened in 2009. So David was mustering sheep on his property, and it was a fine March day, and he spotted a few fragments of bone at the surface, and two in particular caught his eye, and they looked like the two ends of a limb bone. And he was hoping, based on their size, that they were the ends of a theropod limb bone, so a meat-eating dinosaur. And he thought then that the shaft must have been missing between those two ends. However, then his wife, Judy, pieced the two bits of bone back onto each other, revealing that they were quite a bit shorter than David had thought, but they formed a complete sauropod toe bone. And uh, that sauropod toe bone basically signalled the existence of more bones beneath the surface. So later in 2005, they excavated the site and they found a concretion about half the size of a bus, just bristling with bones. Mm, How much of the skeleton was discovered in the field? I think about 21% of the skeleton has been recovered. Uh, If you take a sauropod skeleton to have about 237 bones, we've got about 50 of Savannosaurus, so it's pretty good as far as sauropods go. And because it is that complete, it is actually the third most complete sauropod dinosaur ever found in Australia. Some other countries are quite fortunate in as much as they get almost complete sauropod skeletons preserved. We've uh, only had that level of luck once, I guess, and that's with Retosaurus back in 1924 near Roma. But to get more than 20% of any type of dinosaur skeleton in Australia is fantastic. Which significant parts of the skeleton were discovered? Well, I guess in the Winton area, we more often than not find sauropod limb bones. They are very sturdy. They will, they survive the trip up through the black soil, which is the eroded form of the Winton formation, much more easily than the more delicate bones like vertebrae, skulls, ribs, that sort of thing. The good thing with Savannosaurus is that not only do we have a lot of the bones from the front limb, we also have quite a few vertebrae. So we've got one from the neck, we have at least five from the tail, and eight from the, um, the back and also the vertebrae that went between the hips. So we've got probably one of the most complete spinal columns 
of a Cretaceous sauropod dinosaur ever found in the whole country. And that tells us a lot about the size of the animal, how big its belly was, and also because of the details of the vertebrae, we can very easily place Savannosaurus on the sauropod family tree. Did you find any teeth? No, we did not, unfortunately. We've actually not found any teeth in the Winton area of sauropod dinosaurs at all. So we don't know precisely what types of plants they preferred. Hopefully we'll either find one with gut contents preserved or we'll find a skull with teeth in the near future. How did you recognise this species uh, as a new species of dinosaur? Well, to work out whether or not any dinosaur is unique, you need to compare it against other similar dinosaurs. So more often than not, you would have to just refer to published papers where other sauropod dinosaurs have been described or illustrated. But I also had the good fortune to be working in Europe at the time that I was working on Savannosaurus. So I was able to look at Chinese sauropods that were held in Sweden. And also I went on two trips to Argentina with a couple of colleagues from the UK and looked at sauropods from all over Argentina as well. And once we'd done that, once we'd also compared Savannosaurus against other Australian sauropod dinosaurs, we could say, yes, this animal is unique, and we were able to put a name on it. How long did it take to piece the skeleton together? Well, after its discovery in 2005, preparation didn't start until 2006, and because the bones were all preserved in a very hard concretion, it took quite a while to get them out of the rock to actually allow us to see all the details of Savannosaurus's anatomy. In the preparation lab, it probably took eight years, because it was from 2006 to 2014, that hundreds of volunteers and dozens of staff members worked on the bones of Savannosaurus to try and extract them from the rock in which they were preserved. And then once it was prepared, it's taken another two years or so to get the paper finally accepted and to get Savannosaurus named. Why is the terrain around Winton so important for dinosaur discoveries here in Australia? One of the most critical factors with the Winton formation is that it was deposited in a freshwater setting or a terrestrial and freshwater setting. Because it was a floodplain, it was periodically inundated by floodwaters and that would mean that huge volumes of sediment were moved around at various times. And as a result, when you've got lots of sediment being deposited, you have a high potential for fossils to be preserved. In this particular instance, I guess, with the Winton area, it provides us with a glimpse of what Australia was like 95 million years ago. There are very few areas of Australia that preserve rocks younger than 95 million years ago, but still from the age of dinosaurs. And so it gives us probably the latest or most recent glimpse of the dinosaur age. Nowadays, we're finding some extremely significant and fairly complete skeletons of dinosaurs in the Winton area, and that's a rarity Australia-wide. The Cretaceous lasted from 145 to 66 million years ago, and the Winton area preserves rocks about 98 to 95 million years old. And those rocks preserve not only fossils, but also, of course, footprints, the famous La Quarry dinosaur footprints. Uh, they're near Winton as well. It's definitely smack bang in the middle of the Cretaceous period, and it's shedding a lot of light on what life was like back then. Are there any important ramifications internationally for dinosaur research with the discovery of this new species? Well, I guess any time we find a new dinosaur in Australia, it's significant for paleontology as a whole. Savannosaurus is only the 20th Mesozoic dinosaur to have been given its own name, and it's one of only probably eight or nine that are known from more than one bone. So the more bones you have of a dinosaur, the better able you are to place it on the dinosaur family tree. But as far as we can tell, of course, the most significant ramifications are for the origin of 
these titanosaurs that lived in Australia during the Cretaceous period. Because of where Savannosaurus and its close cousin Diamantinosaurus sit on the sauropod family tree, and because they're closely related to uh, South American titanosaurs, we can suggest that their ancestry lies in South America. And because of that, we were also able to work out the approximate timing of the dispersal event from South America into Australia of these titanosaurs. And that's something we've not really ever been able to get a good handle on before. The way that Australian Age of Dinosaurs has set themselves up, they actually have a good volunteer program in place, not only on the digs, but also in the preparation laboratory. And because they enlist the help of the public, they can get a lot of rock prepared and a lot of fossils prepared in a relatively short period of time. And I think it's a good model, probably, for international research institutions as well. You have a lot of volunteers at the uh, Age of Dinosaur Museum in Winton? We have literally hundreds of volunteers. Uh, Some of them have been coming back for more than a decade. And they'll come out for a month at a time or a couple of weeks, prep bones in the laboratory, and really make a huge contribution to paleontology in this country. And of course, the nice thing with something like Savannosaurus is that there would be, yeah, literally hundreds of people out there who could point to a part of that specimen and say, I worked on that bit of that dinosaur. They have a sort of personal connection to it. And of course, that means they, uh, they enjoy seeing it up in lights and uh, getting a bit of a reputation. What process do you need to go through to get a new species of dinosaur recognised? And how long did it take in this case? Well, like any scientific paper, the paper in which we named Savannosaurus needed to go through the peer review process where uh, it was sent to a scientific journal. That journal's editor then decided whether or not the paper was suitable for their publication. And if it was, in their eyes, they sent it out to other scientists to review our work. Uh, If those scientists are satisfied that we have ticked all the boxes, that our scientific hypotheses are sound, then they will accept our paper with few changes and the journal will then publish it. If they're not satisfied, then they will either request major revisions or they'll reject it outright. In our particular case, it took about 15 months from the first submission to final acceptance of the paper. And uh, one of the main reasons for that is that it was actually rejected three times before it was finally accepted. The first two times we submitted it to very high-end journals and they didn't want a bar of it. The third time it went out for review, one scientist liked it, the other did not. So the editor went with the latter. And with the last one, the reviewers were both very positive, the editor was positive, and we were given the green light. How did you decide on the name Savannosaurus? To be honest, I actually didn't choose the name Savannosaurus. It was chosen long before I started working on the dinosaur that was then nicknamed Wade. The name was chosen by David Elliott, largely because he wanted the name to reflect the modern-day savannah country that dominates the Winton area today. And um, paleontologists Scott Hocknell and Alex Cook wanted to honour the Elliott family by naming the dinosaur's species name after it. So that's why the species name is Elliottorum. Are there any new exciting discoveries on the horizon at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum? We have a couple of crocodilomorphs, or relatives of modern-day crocodiles, that are yet to be worked on, and they're going to come out hopefully in the near future. But also, with respect to dinosaurs specifically, we have another sauropod on the way. It's not a new type of dinosaur, but it is actually the first juvenile sauropod that's ever been found in Australia. So that will hopefully uh, shed a bit of light on how these dinosaurs grew from from the egg to being adult. Uh, What are you working on now that Savannosaurus has been published? Well, 
work on Savannosaurus is not finished yet. I still need to do a full paper describing its anatomy, all of its, every single one of its bones in great detail. We have only done a perfunctory description so far. Um, but the other thing that I'm really focused on at the moment is a dinosaur called Ostrosaurus macillopi. And Ostrosaurus was found back in 1932. And after it was excavated in 1933, the site from which those bones came was effectively lost. Other paleontologists tried to visit the site in the 70s and just failed to find anything. But back in 2014, a colleague of mine up in Richmond, and the mayor of Richmond actually, went and relocated the site. And then I helped them excavate in 2014 and 2015, and we found more bones of the same animal that was dug up in the 1930s. So hopefully we'll reunite the specimens at some point, either as casts or 3D prints or even maybe a pipe dream, uh, the actual bones themselves, because some are in Richmond and some are in Brisbane. But basically, those new bones have helped us work out a little bit more clearly uh, exactly where Ostrosaurus sat on the sauropod family tree and uh, also how the carcass looked after the animal died. Quite simply, the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum. It's one of the best museums in the whole country. Uh, it's actually just been recognised as the gold, no, the gold medal for the um, major tourist attraction in Queensland, and it's well-deserved. They have three of the most complete dinosaurs that have ever been found in Australia on display right there in Winton. So Savannosaurus is alongside the type specimens of Diamantinosaurus and also Australia's only good theropod, Australovenator. And they get thousands of people through every year. We'd love to see thousands more. That was Stephen Poropat from the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Natural History Museum talking with Barry Mackay about Savannosaurus. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Please check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Contributing to the show this week was Barry Mackay. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.